Maybe the opening banter can be about how much I hate you because you've gone to see Shakespeare and have a little jealousy <laughs> <in the> competition. <laughs> Have we had enough drama for the evening? And I say, <laughs> oh, well, God. actually, Daniel, I have seen <laughs> some classic drama in the form of a Shakespeare play. That's very cool, mate. I've been watching YouTube videos in my pajamas and crying softly into my pillow. It's a real, real contrast. <laughs> have two Neither of those things. <laughs> Welcome to the Pim Factory, the Adams Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and our Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor, as well as Morgan Schonemeyer, the ASI's Head of External Affairs. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about criminal justice reform and new policing powers, the suspension of the AstraZeneca vaccine, as well as looking at Uber drivers becoming workers. The brutal murder of Sarah Everard has spotlighted the threats faced by women on London streets. Uh, and after a vigil in Clapham Common, the concerns about excessive police enforcement have really started to come to the fore. Uh, and this also comes in the shadow of new legislation in the UK to give police yet more powers against protests. Uh, so I guess let's start with the, the kind of key spark behind all of this discussion, um, the, the murder of Sarah Everard. Um, Morgan, I guess, going to you first, is London still a safe place or are we kind of experiencing a significant issue here? Well, what's unfortunate about this incident is I don't think it's anything new um, to, to London or any city or any woman, really. The idea that we are always vulnerable walking through parks at night, um, walking home alone, basically doing lots of activities uh, alone we are we are vulnerable and we do know that so I, I don't actually think that this indicates a new or novel problem but that is again part of the larger situation here is it, it's kind of pointing out that we ought to be safe in our cities and we ought to be safe walking home um but we're not we haven't been and i don't think we will be for a while uh and matthew it, this kind of comes in the the context of, of generally in crime in london seeming to be quite high recently. If you look at the murder rate, it's currently a, a, a three-year high. Is this something that's kind of really acknowledged very much by politicians at the moment? Has there been a strong response from, from our leaders to the fallout behind this murder? Yeah, look, I think there has been quite a response. I think it is genuinely quite shocking. Um, just the, the, the pure kind of normality of a woman walking home from... Um, in fact, a few hundred meters from from where I live, through the park that's up up the road from me, um, that I when I'm in London run around every morning, and and then walking into Brixton and and having such a brutal activity happen to them, and I, it's kind of impossible for someone to feel safe after hearing that, even even if it is um, an extremely rare occurrence that the an actual murder of, of a, a woman on the streets of London in such a way it, it puts fear down everyone's spine and it also reaches into i think this is where a lot of discussions come in recent days this kind of underlying issue of just the fact that women do feel threatened and, and harassed on the streets and that that's never acceptable um although i mean murder might be at a three-year high i don't think it's worth thinking about it 
in such a kind of narrow time frame. I mean, in, in historical terms, um, if you look at the, the longer term trends, both over you know the last 20 or 30 years or the last few hundred years, the rate, the rate of homicide, the rate of murder um, is extraordinarily declined. The, the classic book on this is Stephen Pinker's Battle Angels of Our Nature, who kind of diagnosed just how violent um, humanity used to be. Uh, and in a sense, you can you can make a, a longer term argument about progress and that the fact that we're focusing on on Saravad and, and how shocking it is um, is in some ways a reflection of the fact that this isn't something that that can or should or in some senses does happen every day, but it sort of does happen too often um, and something that she would still need to focus on. Uh, the tragic part as well here, though, I think, is that it's still relatively where from uh, someone to die on the streets. It's, it's much more common to die. A woman to be murdered in a domestic violence kind of situation, which is a whole another complex issue to, to try to deal with and, and very difficult issue to deal with as well. Um, so it's, I think it was a good article I read on Unheard by Tom Shivers, who went through some of the statistics about the murder rate and kind of came to the conclusion that um, it's it's very difficult for, for men to understand the way women feel. Um, and it is very difficult to change as well as, as Morgan said, to fix this issue, to solve the problem that women do get inevitably harassed on the street. Um, and I don't know what our, <laughs> I know what the answer to that is. Um, and I think everyone's very open to ideas at the moment, uh, but it does seem like rightfully so that the focus is now on, you know, men's terrible behavior rather than doing the, the kind of classic, well, you know, women need to dress better or, you know, not be more suggestive or something like that. I think it's absolutely ridiculous when, when people say that. It's obviously not the women who should be blamed for the behaviour of men um, and men need to take responsibility from a very young age. Um, and we're seeing that kind of social change happen, which I think is quite welcome and quite needed. From the perspective of, of liberals, we do want a more liberal attitude and to be treating people as fair and equal. Yeah, Morgan, just on that that point about the, the kind of classic response in the past from a lot of men being basically victim blaming. Um, do you do you agree with Matthew that that's something that we are starting to see a shift in in attitudes on, or do you think actually it, it is still remains a, a kind of prevalent attitude amongst men? I definitely think we're seeing a, a shift. I think people are realizing, and, and women are saying, we've always done everything we can to keep ourselves safe. We carry our keys in our fists. We let people know our location. We fake phone calls when they're in the presence of someone that's, you know, threatening just to make it look like we're not so vulnerable. So the idea that me being out walking on the street by myself is somehow a mitigating factor if I were to be attacked because I invited this upon myself. I think the exact opposite is true. Women have had to do whatever they can to make themselves safe because they know that these threats are out there. So I think it's, it is shifting a bit and, and men are realizing that women have just as much right to walk down the street as they do. Um, and if someone attacks them, it's not the fault of the person. Um, I think that it gets a little bit more challenging when you get into instances of sexual assault or domestic violence, because again, you have that, intimate relationships of those between the victim and, and the abuser. Um, and so there is always a lot, oh, why didn't she just leave him? Why didn't she, you know, report it as soon as it happened? Why didn't she do this, that, and the other? And unfortunately, a lot of that comes down to uh, women not thinking that they're going to have any legal recourse for bringing a case against someone who's hurting them. They don't feel they have any power in the situation. And they've just been told over and over and over again that it's your fault. So no one's going to be here to help you. 
Um, so I hope that that does change and that more women feel p- empowered to come forward with their experiences. Um, and hopefully it will lead to kind of a sea change in not only how we discuss these issues, but how we solve them and how we persecute crimes surrounding these issues. And Matthew mentioned earlier that we have seen quite a, a strong response from, from the government and politicians in the wake of the murder and looking at new policies and strategies that at least aim to try and limit street harassment um, and harassment in other places such as uh, clubs and pubs. And maybe it might be worth going through each of the proposals in turn and, and giving out our verdicts. The, the first one, one that's gone in quite a lot of headlines is government proposing uh, a register of men who harass women uh, modeled on the sex offenders register uh, and the kind of I guess the goal of this or the outcome of this would be let's say uh, a man was caught groping or or being uh, other forms of harassing behavior in in a club then they would be added to this register uh, and other clubs could or or would refuse them entry perhaps Uh, is this something that you see as helping the situation? Are there any kind of unintended consequences here? Well, specifically this policy, there's a few things here. The sex offenders register works because these people have been found guilty in a court of law and are therefore put on a registry um, as part of their punishment. If this new sexual deviant registration, whatever it's going to be called, uh, is... Yeah, (laughs) pithy. Um, If this new registration is government mandated but comes with no uh legal sentence it doesn't they haven't been proven guilty of anything in a court of law that's very dangerous i think but at the same time you have uh precedent for this sort of activity in the private sector (laughs) private sector um if you're a pub and someone is constantly coming into your pub causing trouble not paying their bill uh you know smashing glasses starting fights you can ban him from your pub and other pubs you own or other pubs in the chain. You can let other local pubs know that this person is a menace and shouldn't be allowed in. So if clubs see someone persistently uh, harassing women, forcing th- themselves on women or causing trouble of that nature, then absolutely they should feel free to ban them from their premises and share that this person probably isn't a welcome person uh, into their premises. Um, so I think that could be a solution if clubs really want to kind of make themselves appear, not even just appear safer, want to make themselves safer and a more pleasant experience for women, then that's absolutely something that they could take on. But the idea that the government would have a list of people who haven't been found guilty of anything in a court of law doesn't sit right with me. Seems like with a lot of these kind of policy solutions that that they're thinking about, it's hard to pinpoint, um, and this is the struggle the government has, it's hard to pinpoint exactly like what the issue they're trying to solve at any particular time is. And then proposing a solution to that problem that that's not necessarily clear is going to work. Um, and I suspect that um, you know you can think about a register, and you, once you start getting into details of it, it's an absolute mess. Or you know, the same with the idea of playing closed police officers in clubs. Um, I mean, the underlying issue here is that you're not going to be able to have necessarily a state or a government-led response to a lot of these problems and that's where the government's going to struggle or there's this kind of call this instinctive call for the government needs to do something there needs to be some policy change i mean it feels like this is more of a cultural issue than anything else because it, it it's it's not obviously you can you know make sure you prosecute cases better and make sure that the, the criminal justice system works you can do certain policy changes but the underlying issue in terms of making sure people feel safe 
um, on the streets and, and people aren't harassed um, is kind of like an, an, an ever-moving kind of cultural challenge um, that you can't necessarily solve with kind of top-down responses, which seems to be the instinct of the state and of a lot of people who call for policy change when there's some, something happens. Just on the on the proposed register for men who harass women, I, I agree with you, Morgan. I think that if it's done right, then it could play a positive role in the sense of if, if it's not just um, the kind of... It, it reminds me a little bit of the, the kangaroo courts in some US universities where, where students are potentially thrown out for unproven allegations without actually being tried in a court of law. If it was based on, on convictions in a court of law, it would obviously you know, capture far less people, you know, that far less people would, would get a conviction for, say, groping in a club than they would be reported for it. And plenty would be able to get away with it without a conviction that would you know, play some role there. The, the other worry that I would have with it is it could potentially just displace people who harass away from clubs and pubs and, and out into to other locations. Now, it wouldn't be a kind of one-to-one displacement or anything. I think it still would have a you know, a, a decent effect, but that would be another thing I'd, I'd worry about. And Matthew mentioned there one of the, the other proposals designed to tackle street harassment and uh, and harassments in various public venues that plainclothes officers in clubs. And we, we actually saw, I think yesterday, a YouGov poll come out about this that showed quite significant public support for um, for more plainclothes officers in clubs. And this is something that, you know, my my Twitter feed was very much against this and the justification i think understandably for opposing this is that well we've just had a police officer murder a woman um why do we want more police officers around women in these sort of venues um but i guess you know there's two sides to every story and if you actually look at the gender breakdown of of public support women do tend to favor it significantly uh and more than men on average although that's more true amongst older women than it is amongst younger women so maybe it doesn't quite apply to those who who are most at risk of harassment uh what are, what are your thoughts on the idea of, of more plain clothes officers in clubs and pubs i was shocked to see that polling data that something like 53 percent of mm. 18 to 24 year olds were in favor of this um to me it it's a silly policy it's a reactionary policy that someone to my mind thought up on the back of a napkin and decided this is something we could do and there's a few reasons why. In a busy club environment, it is unlikely that there will be enough undercover police presence to disrupt this activity. Um, it would be It's hard to see. It's loud. It's dark. Um, there's a lot of people. But the idea that plainclothes police officers are there, I don't think will be enough to turn for men, but it might make women uh, let down their guard a little bit more, which would make the problem worse. Also, I think there's a huge problem with the police um and disparities of power so the idea that if you'd have an undercover police officer in a position of power um, and authority trawling a pub or trawling a club with immunity it just doesn't sit right with me I, I find it hard to articulate why but i don't think knowing that there were undercover police officers trying to monitor a situation which is very hard to assess would make me feel any safer in fact i would be concerned about undercover people lying that they're undercover police officers try to gain someone's trust. That's, I think, what I was trying to get at is the idea that there's suddenly this vague person of power in in the club and they could try to say, look, I'm a good guy uh, when they're not. 
or something of, of the like. So I haven't articulated this very well, but it just doesn't sit right with me. It seems um, kind of insidious in the way that it plans to attack this problem by injecting more uncertainty and more disparities of power and and more people who can uh, take advantage of vulnerable women or allows men another opportunity to take advantage of vulnerable women by saying, I'm one of the good guys. Yeah, that, that was my kind of the, the first thought that popped to mind when I saw that proposal was, well, what's to stop some pretty predatory men just lying and saying they're playing post police officers in order to gain people's trust? You know, it, it's... I mean, they could do that anyway, but when you have like a, a large public policy announcement like that, if it was to come through, then you, you'd probably get a spike in, in those sort of cases. Um, but I, I think moving on to some of the, we, we've heard the government's policy reaction uh, in terms of public reaction to um, to the murder. We saw the Reclaim the Streets vigil in Clapham Common getting a, a rather robust um, or unjust, depending on your point of view, response from the police they they attempted to ban the vigil um, and then subsequently tried to to break it up and tactics that were used um, a lot of people describe as quite heavy-handed Matthew do you think that there's a, a case for kind of applying lockdown rules and actually the police were right to try and crack down on this or, or is there a more fundamental right to protest here look I think at a, at a principal level they're quite clear to me, has to be a right to protest. And I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of, of, bla- of banning rallies, banning protests uh, as during COVID. Purely it's a civil rights element that even at the most extreme, even when there is a, a very strong case um, to limit public gatherings be- because of the, the virus, that you still need a right to be able to show and, and publicise and to oppose the government. Um and be able to put forward a political opinion. I mean, the whole story affair seems quite bizarre to me. Um, the fact that obviously they wanted to have this vigil, they wanted to do it in a relatively safe, socially distanced manner. The police would not let them do that. Um, and they refused, um, at least according to the um, protest organisers, the, the police refused to negotiate in good faith to figure out an arrangement because at least according to the courts and even um, according to kind of the official guidance, you should still be able, to have, be able to have a protest. You just have to make sure it's done in the right way. Now, that couldn't happen because the police didn't seem like they wanted that to happen. They were scared that there were going to be too many people there. Maybe that wasn't going to be possible. But then to go on to that and say, well, we're going to kind of allow some people to gather, but some people not to gather. And then at some point, arbitrarily, we're going to start throwing people down onto the ground um, who are doing nothing more than trying to light candles at a bandstand in order to mark the murder of a woman who don't really appear to be causing danger to anyone. Now, I understand the police are in a difficult position because they've been given laws and guidance to um, enforce that they might not necessarily want to have to do. But it, the extent to which they have discretion and they're using it in such arbitrary ways, I mean, we didn't see this kind of enforcement against Black Lives Matter protests, but we are just randomly seeing this kind of enforcement today. Um, you're going to rightfully come under a lot of scrutiny, a lot of criticism as a result. But I also think we have to hold the politicians to account for the fact that they've effectively given them such confusing instructions um, and then criticise them for potentially following the instructions given them when it comes to these kind of gatherings. Yeah, the, the arbitrary nature of it is something that really irked me as well. You mentioned the kind of the different response when it came to, to Black Lives Matter and the same true of, um, of the Extinction Rebellion protest too. And there's almost... A, it seems like it's creating a perverse incentive where actually 
you know, the, this reclaim the streets vigil was extremely, you know, <laughs> extremely non-violent, not based on any sort of attempts at property damage or, or particular disruption to the wider city or anything like that. And in that case, the police were far more heavy-handed with their enforcement than they were with with other protests that were genuinely disruptive, like Extinction Rebellion, for example. And that that to me is basically saying to to would be people who want to organize a protest okay you know if if you're you kind of try to follow the rules and you try to socially distance and and um try to keep it peaceful and stuff then we're going to really crack down on you and we're going to throw your face into the dirt and um you know we're, we're we're going to treat you much more harshly than we would if you were being far more disruptive to me that's that's like the worst sort of perverse incentive you can get and and it's just completely arbitrary as you say uh, and this is something that you know i'm i'm perhaps a little a little more sanguine about enforcing lockdown restrictions in general um than most liberals but at the same time yeah i, I agree with you here matthew that there, there does need to be some right to protest even if we're talking about you know enforcing social distancing if, if a protest is to take place illegally for example it is an important part of um of, of democracies and of, of free and liberal societies and if this is our response to what is ultimately a, a yeah, a very noble and I think much needed vigil um, that was organized with all of the best intentions and the best measures put in place, then clearly we've got something wrong with um, with how we approach this. Uh, and I think just the, the final kind of topic for, for this section of the podcast, because it's quite a, a meaty one, and we're, we're going to have to skip over some aspects of it, but we've had the, the government's police crime and sentencing and courts bill recently come to light in the Commons. Do we think that this is kind of a, an attempt to balance the consequence of disruption with this right to protest? And if so, is it a successful one? So this is a huge bill and it includes a lot of stuff besides the protest uh, measures, but this is kind of what's come to the, the front of the media and it, it's garnered the most criticism, um, especially with the Labour Party deciding that they would vote against the amendment or vote against the bill in, in light of these protest measures. But it is in direct response to a hole in the legislation that was discovered during the Extinction Rebellion protests. So the way that the bill modifies existing legislation is that it allows the police to set any limits they deem necessary on static protests. So previously, the police could set any limits they need, deemed necessary to uh, protest marches. That included things like the route, how many people could attend, the duration um, that sort of thing. And they couldn't do that to static protests, which is what Extinction Rebellion was doing. They were setting up camp on bridges and in the center of the city. And the police had no powers to move them on or to disperse. Um, and they were causing a lot of disruption. So the legislation is designed to allow the police to move on static protests. Now, where it gets tricky is, again, in this arbitrary nature, it puts in the idea that the police can put these limits if they think that the protest will cause nuisance, disturbance, noise, inconvenience to anyone in the area. Obviously, that is completely subjective at this stage. It's possible that amendments will be passed to make that not subjective. Um, the police don't have the power to ban protests. Only the Home Secretary can ban a protest and say that it can't happen. And it hasn't. that hasn't happened since 2011. Um, and it's only happened a handful of times, and that's in cases where the protest is likely to devolve into violence um, or 
chaos disorder. So police won't be banning protests, but this does open up a door to a lot of uh, subjective handling of protests, like we saw with the Clapham Common Vigil. It was subjective that the police decided to crack down on this particular vigil and not others. And so this legislation opens up more subjective uh, policing powers with with respect to protests. Oh, I think it's probably about time to move on to the next section of this podcast on the recent suspension of vaccine rollout in Europe, as well as potential supply issues that are coming to the fore in the UK. France, Germany, Spain, Italy, and a number of other European countries have suspended the use of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine after some unproven links to a small number of blood clotting cases. On the other hand, the World Health Organization, the European Medicines Agency, and the UK's own MHRA have said the vaccine remains safe. Daniel, why do you think these European countries have taken this, quite frankly, extraordinary move in the middle of a global pandemic to ban what is potentially a life-saving vaccine? So for me, this is a a clear-cut case of European countries uh, and broadly the EU misapplying the precautionary principle. And this is something that they have done repeatedly in other fields. I I spoke or I speak a lot about this when it comes to e-cigarette evidence as well. But in this particular case, what that means, misapplying the precautionary principle, is not realizing that the cost of this ban is extremely significant or, or potentially extremely significant in terms of human lives. And it's based on this very much unproven link um, to to blood clots. So you've got the kind of trade-off here between a proven and certain harm, which is, of course, COVID-19, versus an unproven and, in fact, very unlikely uh, and much smaller harm. And yet they've decided for for various reasons that they're they're happy with the much larger harm of people not getting uh, enough vaccinations here. I mean, if you look into the details of this, as you said in the introduction to this section, that there's basically no kind of official uh, medical regulatory body that thinks that this argument um, for banning the vaccine holds any water. In fact, the, the idea that um, the number of blood clots from people who have reported the vaccines is any higher than to be expected in the general population usually is, is just not true. Um, there are some cases of an extremely rare form of blood clot in the brain taking place. Um, but again, there's absolutely no evidence that this is as a re- result of the vaccine. But, you know, just to be on the safe side, um, they've decided to, to temporarily suspend and ban it anyway. Although actually at the time recording today, it looks like there's going to be an update from um, the European Medicines Agency and the, the EU regarding their stance on this. And one hopes that they're going to realize what they're doing is hugely harmful to people all across Europe um, and just completely unscientific. Maybe just a bit more uh, detail on on what I meant when I compared this to e-cigarettes as well, because it's useful to kind of illustrate the principle. Um, You've got this idea that, well, even though we have a very good idea that e-cigarettes are much safer than cigarettes um, and something that, again, um, the kind of major authorities and, and major health authorities in various countries, especially the UK, um, have established that is the case. There's still this kind of unknown of well, we don't we don't necessarily know 100% the long-term effects of these things. Um, so therefore, we should err on the side of caution. We should overregulate. Or in the case of um, the World Health Organization, they seem perfectly happy with countries outright banning them, despite the fact that they are 
you know, almost certainly much safer than smoking, um, and people should switch to them if they could. Uh, so you, you're just seeing this, this same sort of mentality, and I, I think it's it's born in some ways out of caution for just worrying about headlines. I mean, if you if you're a government and people start dying as a result of the vaccine that you've approved, then you're going to have massive egg on your face. Whereas there's not quite as clear a link between people dying of COVID and it being your fault um, as a government if you decide to, to ban the vaccine. So there's like a, a real perverse incentive here when it comes to media reporting and, and political realities. And I imagine that's playing quite a significant role. Yeah, I think where I probably disagree with you is I don't necessarily would say this is a misapplication of the precautionary principle. I think this is applying the precautionary principle um, <laughs> as it is generally interpreted, which is to say you should prevent an activity that potentially threatens harm, um, even if there isn't scientific evidence of that harm. Um, and that is actually the reverse of the onus of proof. So it, it's putting the onus onto e-cigarette manufacturers to prove effectively the impossible, to prove that there is no harm, rather than putting the onus on the opponents to prove that there is harm. And it's the same principle here. I mean, I was interested to see a quote from a Norwegian uh, health official, I think it was the, the head of... Um, uh, medical regulation in Norway who said in response to AstraZeneca stating there's no link between the AstraZeneca vaccine and um, the, the very small number of blood, clot, blood clots. Um, the Norwegian health officials said, and I quote, we also do not have the basis to, for saying that the blood clots do not have anything to do with the vaccine. <laughs> so it's, to me, that, well, that's exactly right. It, it's, it's ridiculous. It's putting the onus in the wrong direction. I think that's the whole problem with the, the precautionary principle um, that's very widely entrenched across EU thinking. It's, it's formally entrenched in the EU constitution, in, uh, more or less, or the Treaty of Lisbon, as it became known, on when it comes to environmental matters. And it seems to be the approach on a bunch of regulatory issues like GM crops or, to some extent, people's um, thinking about nuclear. It's the idea that there could be threats that means that you need to prevent it rather than doing what you're talking about, Daniel, which is a much better approach, which is a cost-benefit analysis. Yes, um, there are potential costs here, but there are overwhelming benefits from GM foods in terms of in, in producing more food using less land, using less pesticides, using less water. Therefore, we should lean on the side of technology and progress. Um, put reversing the onus is what the precautionary principle says and says, well, GM food could theoretically have these issues. We don't have any proof they have these issues, but it's up to you to show us, to persuade us that they don't have any of these issues. Um, and, and therefore, you lead to a kind of um, inability to make decisions. Now, of course, you can go even one step further. And I was reading um, Cass Sunstein wrote an article for, for Cato uh, well over a decade ago on um, the precautionary principle. And Cass made the argument that using the precautionary principle, you can argue for and against everything. Because not doing an action from a precautionary principle perspective could also lead to theoretical downfalls, as you were saying. So there's uh, effectively just um, polarisis that comes out of this. So you can't really do much at all. Um, Morgan, I, I'm keen to get your thoughts, but also um, potentially, is there, I mean, ever a, a, in your mind, potentially justification for the precautionary principle? Um, but maybe when it comes to vaccines, it is maybe more justified, for example, because we're putting these vaccines into healthy people's arms. Yeah, I think the point about vaccines is is right, because you do have to prove that they are safe, but you will never be able to prove that there is no danger. Um, I think it was I, it, I think it was Jonathan Van Tam, who in the last press conference listed out some of the uh, frequent side effects of aspirin which included things like mouth sores and fevers and 
uh, you know, body aches and all of these things. But we take aspirin on a regular basis. So you'll never be able to prove that something is completely free of danger. And in, in which case, I think the precautionary principle is largely misguided um, because it, again, it asks you to do the impossible. And in this case, what you said that was interesting about Cass Sunstein's article, and he, he said that there's um, cost of inaction. And the cost of inaction in this situation is very clear. By not vaccinating your people, the people of the EU, they're exposing them to the risk of COVID-19. They're extending their lockdowns. They're costing themselves millions and millions of euros. So the 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 cost of inaction is so blatantly clear. But as Daniel said, the political implications aren't as clear. It's like a secondary uh, effect. So yeah, I, th- I think the only way for the EU to overcome this is is to realize that they've made a mistake and crawl back. There's also, I think this is slightly more again, sanguine or morbid point here is even if it was true that um, that the vaccine contributed to a, a small number of, of blood clots, if that number was extremely small, the benefits of the vaccine would still far, far outweigh the cost, right? You know, this is, it, it's like a, a kind of trolley problem um, in, in real life. Um, and that's why I think the trolley problem is such a great kind of philosophical thought experiment, because it, it can be applied to real life cases such as this, where you've got, you know, if you pull the lever by allowing the vaccine that, that might have the side effect and you know you pull the lever and one person gets um run over by the blood clot train but then you're saving you know ten thousand people from COVID 19 death then clearly you should pull that lever i think that's completely obvious um but of course I, that's not a particularly good public relations argument or something that i i particularly like to say you know if i was uh communicating the kind of medical benefits of vaccines because it's it's not something that comes across as particularly compelling i think um as a science communication tool but it, it, nonetheless i think it is true um and worth kind of considering when you are involved in policy making of this sort but you know as, as we've said it doesn't look like there is the case that there's there's any sort of risk in, in a more direct sense we we accept that the covid vaccines actually have a a very high number of mild side effects in terms of f- fatigue, right. in terms of fever for a couple of days. Um, that That's quite widely known. It's quite widely understood that not all people are going to react um, in terms of their immune responses to having the vaccine can, can be quite new, but we think that a couple of days of suffering is worth the broader benefit. And at the same time, uh, a one in a million chance um, of uh, blood clot is still a worthwhile balance to make in order to keep kind of faith in, and confidence in vaccines and save millions of lives from a virus that potentially kills one in a hundred people. Um, I, I think though, we, we... Just, just quickly, I think that that's why you should be um, better suited to the job as a government's chief medical advisor than I would be. That's, that's a far more compelling argument, I think, for people than, uh, than my trolley <laughs> problem. argument. It always goes back to the trolley problem with you, Daniel. I mean, I think what's so fascinating <laughs> about this is it's kind of coming at the same time as we're still seeing that the next episode in the vaccine wars, um, despite the fact that the AstraZeneca vaccine is banned for currently for use in a number of European countries, they're also threatening to, to restrict exports and expropriate property uh, from um, AstraZeneca for a failure to deliver all the vaccines that have been planned. Meanwhile, in the UK, uh, there's news um, coming out about the fact that there's going to be some 
unexpected uh, shortages in supply next month, though that appears to more likely be linked to issues when it comes to um, imports from um, the Serum Institute in India. Um, Morgan, are you concerned about this delay we're seeing in the vaccines and this kind of vaccine nationalism that's popping up as well? Uh, With regards to delay in the UK, I'm not particularly concerned. Um, I think we've done an amazing job thus far. Millions of people have been vaccinated. Um, A temporary blip is probably just that. uh, And we will still be uh, protecting our citizens at a faster rate than most other countries. The the vaccine nationalism and and the kind of uh, gymnastics that the EU is going through with do they approve AstraZeneca or do they not? Do they want all the doses or are they not going to give them is fascinating. Um, I don't want to say it's hilarious because it's obviously horrible for EU citizens who are being um, kind of messed around in this way by the EU, but it is just so fascinating seeing the different hoops and contortions the EU is putting itself in uh, to try to fix a problem that they made. Um, We have to remember that the whole reason that the EU is scrambling over the AstraZeneca vaccine is because they chose to try to get a lower price. AstraZeneca was offering the vaccine at cost, like, and, and the EU didn't think that was good enough, so they wanted to negotiate a lower price, resulting in a three-month delay in getting their contracts. And that was their choice, and now they're trying to um, force uh, AstraZeneca to renege on contracts made in good faith. Um, they're trying to... Uh, effectively steal or block vaccines from other countries um and at the same time they don't even know that they want to use the vaccines because they haven't they've they've restricted use of vaccines in a lot of countries um which also doesn't help for their incredibly high rates of vaccine hesitancy in a lot of the countries um so i think that this is just an absolute mess that the eu has made and is making worse one of the things that really irritates me about the kind of there, there are defenders of the EU's attempts to or, or worries about banning exports in the UK and the kind of argument that they tend to use is while the UK in negotiating these sort of supply agreements with, with vaccine manufacturers negotiated priority access so actually that's exactly the same thing as or, or equivalent to threatening to ban exports whereas of course they're, they're completely different things you know nobody's going to be thinking that their property rights are under threat through negotiating a priority access contract and you know the kind of fallout of undermining property rights when it comes to potentially seizing factories in the eu as has been talked about is very different from you know playing by the rules of the game and negotiating a, a priority contract you've got this kind of contrast between negotiating under the rules of the game um, versus overriding the rules of the game, which is exactly what the EU is doing. Um, and to me, the attempts to kind of draw equivalence between these are just uh, are shameful. I mean, we shouldn't call this a game. So this is a very serious matter of um, getting vaccines. But in a sense, the EU did lose the, the procurement game here. Um, and now it wants to then break the rule because it didn't procure successfully. And I think we should have a lot of empathy. I, I think they're very much struggling. If we just look at the case numbers at the moment yeah. in Italy, uh, in France, they, they're going back up um, despite the fact that they've just gone through a pretty terrible wave. And in, the, in a sense, the UK is doing much better vaccinations. I, mean, I completely agree with you, Morgan. I'm not too worried about this um, delay because things were previously going relatively well. It looks like the overall targets will still be met. Uh, and the fact is that 
the people who can currently get vaccinated um, include 99% of people who could potentially die from COVID. The next bit in terms of doing the general public is, is almost a luxury. Um, and if that takes an extra month or two, I, I don't think we should be too worried about it. What does worry me in the longer run, though, are these kind of vaccine nationalism we're seeing from the EU. This is going to not just have an immediate effect uh, in terms of the country's impact. I mean, the only currently impacted country is Australia. Um, but, you know, don't get me started around about Australia's terribly incompetent vaccine um, program domestically, uh, let alone the, the, the supply issues. But in the sense of if you're a company considering where you're going to build your factories, if how international they're going to be, um, how much risk are you going to take in terms of integrating into global supply chain? I think you're inevitably going to see out of this a large extent of deglobalization, which inevitably is going to mean less efficient production. The reason why we like free trade is because it, it ensures you can get goods as you need them at lower cost from a wide variety of places. When you start getting these kind of risks, these huge sovereign risks to your companies all across the board, that at any moment you could start banning things. And there's a lot of to and fro trade that, that goes into the raw goods to make these vaccines as well that could theoretically be impacted. You're going to be very scared about having your supply chains anywhere near Europe. And that just takes a big chunk of the world out as you're already looking at risk around China uh, as well as a huge supply chain risk. So I'm very disappointed in the EU that they're not thinking more broadly about the implications of what they're doing. And then the second absolutely nutty idea about expropriating the AstraZeneca factory, as we really think the EU officials can walk into a vaccine factory and effectively make vaccine, it's obviously a hollow threat. Like they, they need the, the um, AstraZeneca expertise to produce the vaccine. They cannot safely do this um, without AstraZeneca doing it. Taking away their property will just naturally, if I was the um, AstraZeneca, would say you're not getting any doses because we can't, run the, the, the factories ourselves. We're not going to let you run them instead under our name because that's just a huge risk that you'll screw this up and that then our brand name will be ruined as a result, let alone the, the faith in putting any investment dollars into the EU. I mean, I don't know why I should say we would ever put another factory in the EU ever again, as far as I'm concerned, if this is the threat that they're, <laughs> they're sitting under. And we know every time and every place you talk about expropriation of property, it, it's, it's the biggest confidence destruction for business and just the fact that you won't rule that out i find absolutely mind-boggling yeah there's, there's not just the physical expropriation threats hollow though they probably are there's also the intellectual property side of things as well and of course you know as as free marketeers i'm sure there's a variety of views on the costs and benefits of intellectual property itself but regardless of that you shouldn't think that it could be unilaterally undermined like this and think that that's that's an okay practice or a good thing uh, you mentioned raw materials as well matthew um, in relation to vaccine production and my worry is, is similar to yours here if you're going to have this sort of undermining of, of globalization this deglobalization you could have an escalation here right Let, let's say for the sake of argument that that the eu does decide to uh to expropriate the astrazeneca production facilities well you know what's to stop the uk though i don't think they should do this they might well do say okay well, we're going to stop exports of raw materials for their production then you know screw you um and this escalates into a trade war like this this is a, a trade war with arguably far worse consequences than any trade war we could ever see in history if if it comes down to it now as you say i think we've got to be cautious here this this is largely throwaway remarks and threats but even so the fact that they're being made in the first place i think in itself undermines confidence um, and undermines confidence to global markets for example it undermines 
future investment opportunities in both the EU and let's say the UK were to respond, it would in the UK as well. So you've got a situation where we're really treading a tightrope here. We have to be, and by we, I mean, where the EU has to be very careful in, in not undermining its own future economic success, as well as the trade relations and the globalization that's enriched us and made us happier, healthier and wealthier across the world. And in our next exploration of uh, the the potential end of a, a certain way of operating relatively freer markets, um, I think we're now going to take a look at the move of Uber to make their workers employees. Uber has announced that its driver partners will be reclassified as workers, providing entitlement to holiday pay, uh, auto-enrollment in pension schemes, as well as minimum wage pay in certain circumstances. This all comes after a recent UK Supreme Court judgment on the matter. I guess it's, it's worth starting off with a little bit of background here. Matthew, why has there been such a push against Uber in recent years? Well, look, I think Uber, in a sense, when it came to a PR war, um, for a long time going to a lot of countries intentionally were willing to break the rules in order to disrupt the market that we have to remember was a hugely producer benefiting, terrible for users of, of taxis when it came to transport. And as part of that disrupting the market, they had a new format for employing people where they wanted to give people an opportunity to be flexible workers, be able to use their own cars, sign up to the app, choose when they their hours when they do and don't want to use it, and then get paid for the journeys that they make. You know, obviously, if you're uh, a old style cabbie, you're not going to be particularly happy that people are in a different kind of working relationship to you. Um, but also if you're a union, you're not going to like the idea of people having this inflexible work, not having the kind of traditional guaranteed rights that you perceive to be um, compulsory rights for employment. So things like um, having um, automatic holiday and sick pay or an automatic minimum wage for um, the, the time that you work um, or having, you know, kind of traditional limits on hours worked, all these kind of things that um, from the perspective of Uber drivers who are signing up, um, potentially they might have actually quite liked the flexibility that they were getting, but from the perspective of a traditional employment relationship was seen to be quite exploitative. Is that true, though, the, the kind of the argument that, well, Uber drivers value this flexibility and they, they don't want this because I read, of course, in the wonderful BBC News uh, website uh, piece in response to this kind of move by Uber with interviews with three Uber drivers who are all very happy that this move had been uh, had taken place from the company. And one of them was saying it's great that it should go much further and the minimum wage measures that were introduced weren't strong enough. Is this something that is actually welcomed by most Uber drivers? Well, I'm sure that the, the BBC uh, worldview, I'm sure it is very much uh, welcomed by all Uber drivers. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of Uber drivers that will be happy with these new arrangements. There was some, some broader um, data that uh, was a study done that actually interviewed a, a broad number of um, Uber driver partner of, of Uber drivers and found that most were pretty happy with the flexibility they had and they didn't want to be, for example, told in a traditional employment sense, what hours they would work. And the whole advantage of Uber is they could switch on and off as they please and they could do it as a side hustle in addition to their job to earn some more income. Um, the, the most Uber drivers seem pretty happy 
with the arrangements. And that obviously makes sense, right? Because no one's forcing anyone to be an Uber driver. No one says you have to do this particular career. People actively choose because they enjoy making the money. They enjoy talking to people. Um, they enjoy driving around. That's just something that they get a personal kick out of and therefore happy to do. Uh, and Morgan, do you think that this, we've talked about the, the driver partners and the kind of effects and the support there. What about the Uber users themselves, the, the consumers? Do you think they're likely to be benefited from such measures? Uh, I don't think so. The way that Uber model, Uber's model uh, works uh, is through increased supply of of vehicles. Uh, as Matt mentioned, one of the issues, especially in London, with the uh previous system was you only had black cabs and if you couldn't catch a black cab you were you were out of luck you might you know not be able to find something so uber uh put more drivers on the streets made access to private transport much more uh readily available especially at night um i also think that the low cost uh, of ubers was a huge factor in its early success the accessibility that you could get a trip for five pounds um, or something like that, which again, the traditional black cab model was always more expensive. So I think this a few things that this ruling does is it actually um, increases the barriers to entry to be an Uber driver. Therefore, there will be fewer Uber drivers, meaning fewer potential uh, cars that people could get rides in. And it will also increase the price of Ubers. So I think that the kind of accessibility and uh, affordability of the model is going to be completely upended uh, and that's going to be bad for consumers especially women who rely on ubers for safe journeys late at night um, people who work odd hours uh, people who don't have access to a car and maybe every once in a while need vehicular transport so yeah i don't think it's gonna be good for consumers um, but i imagine there will come along another disruptor who has a, a model that fixes this um, sooner or later. Well, that, that, that's kind of a, a key question and brings me on to my, my next discussion point, which is, well, what does this mean for other disruptive companies or other sharing economy companies in the future? Because presumably this ruling doesn't just, I mean, it, it might have stemmed from uh, a case against Uber itself, but it presumably wouldn't just be applied to them or it's at least established as a precedent to undermine some of the, the flexibility in the wider sharing economy. Uh, do you see, Matthew, this kind of worry extending to other companies and is it going to undermine the sharing economy more broadly? Uh, and there's always a potential in terms of uh, this court case, depending on how it's applied um, further afield. I mean, in, in a sense, what Uber's doing uh, isn't necessarily 100% following on from that Supreme Court case. Um, for example, some of the, the minimum wage stuff, um, it sounds worse than it is at first because it's actually just a minimum wage when they're driving the minutes that they're driving not necessarily the minutes that they're they're not taking passengers and most uber drivers already make much more than a minimum wage for that that period of time that they are a driver um so it's not it's not necessarily as restrictive or as it might first sound so it's not necessarily the end of the world for the business model it just makes it a little bit more complex um ironically now uber's um in a position where they are uh, the incumbent in in the ride-sharing market in a way that Uber came in and disrupted um, black cabs. Uber is now um, a, the relatively biggest player when it comes to ride-sharing, and that means that that puts them in an advantageous market position, and therefore they can probably offer and they can afford to offer some extra benefits um, to their drivers. Now, is that going to slightly increase costs um, 
for the users potentially. Yeah, slightly. I think that we've already seen Uber's not quite as cheap as it used to be and that that's kind of um, seems to be the, the natural um, reality of it, maybe partly because they do have to just pay more drivers to incentivize them to get on the road. Um, and they <laughs> wouldn't surprise me if Uber comes along shortly and starts um, trying to push for legislation to require other companies to provide whatever benefits Uber's providing so that it makes it for others difficult <laughs> to compete. You know, it's just, this is the kind of natural um, kind of rent-seeking behavior you're going to see. The, the question we really have, and I think this is the, the biggest risk to this, is the kind of labor instinct against zero-hour contracts and the idea of flexible work, I think, is quite dangerous. Um, and even Matthew Taylor uh, the, did a kind of review into um, people's working arrangements in, in the fl- um, flexible economy, you know, isn't against zero-hour contracts like Jeremy Corbyn uh, labor was in terms of wanting to abolish zero-hour contracts. And, and Matthew Taylor had a good understanding that, for example, for students who want to work um, bits and pieces and, and not work some weeks and work uh, lots other weeks when they don't have as much class or as exams coming up or whatever else it may be, and that you do need flexible working arrangements for those people. And as well, I think post-COVID, we've got to think about the extent to which we have a flexible economy and people being able to move in and out of work is going to be very important to be able to, to let companies slowly turn back up the dial with their activity as the customers come back. So I think in terms of our longer-term prosperity, flexibility and employment is going to be absolutely key in a flexible labour market is going to be absolutely key to have higher on, um, employment in future. For me, the the story that isn't really told very much here is that people on these sort of flexible contracts, whether it's zero hours contracts, whether they're Uber's driver partners, for example, consistently say, at least in polling, that they prefer this sort of contract. That's not the case for everyone, but it's the case for in the case of Uber's driver partners, around 80% prefer that sort of arrangement. When it comes to zero-hour contracts more generally, we tend to find higher levels of satisfaction with people in those sort of arrangements. And this is something that is just completely lost. The narrative right now, and it, you know, you've got to take hats off to the people that are pushing against flexible work because they have successfully concocted a narrative where actually most of these people uh, apparently hate these working arrangements. They'd much prefer to... Um, to trade those off for the sort of security that we're talking about, like holiday pay, pension, auto enrollment, etc. But the fact is that this isn't true. It, it's just not the case at all. And instead, what you're seeing is a, a fairly small number in many cases of, um, of activist workers or, or, or driver partners or, or whatnot, bringing these cases to court and effectively screwing over their comrades by, by getting the working conditions daily love being banned or or regulated away so it's something that really kind of frustrates me about this but maybe on a more optimistic note there is i think a a precedence for reversing some of these negative changes we saw last november a ballot initiative in california that actually reversed some of the employment law owners for sharing economy companies Um, do you think that we're potentially going to see any sort of reverse in the uk or are we too far gone right now can I just, I really wanted to add something on to the topic of um, like employer-employee yeah, relationship. Okay. I think mm-hmm. one thing that hasn't, has probably been cleverly uh, disguised is as employers offer more obligation, as employers, uh, yeah, okay, hold on. I think something that's been cleverly disguised in the media is that the obliga- as obligations uh, that employers have to their employees increases, the obligations the employee has to the employer 
also inc- increases. So the idea that as you get paid more, as you get uh, more rights, as you get holidays, that takes away, Dan, like you said, the flexibility to work whenever you want. For example, all of us at the ASI are guaranteed a certain amount of holiday days per year, but we also just can't decide not to work one day. Um, whereas if you're an Uber driver, you don't feel like going out and driving Uber, you can just not do it. And that's something that it, it is really valuable. And I think part of this conversation is completely lost, the idea that it's just employer obligations to employees. Once you get into more formal working structures, the employees have obligations to their employer just the same. Yeah, look, unfortunately, or some would say fortunately, the UK doesn't quite have the um, mechanisms to do ballot initiatives to, to overturn legislation. I think it was a fascinating case, though, in California where basically people said that a lot of the, the flexibility that, that comes in the labour market is ultimately beneficial to people. And you saw Uber drivers saying, well, we want to be able to continue driving Ubers. You saw a lot of innovative companies saying our entire business models depend on a more flexible working arrangement. We can't just have employees. And and as a persuasive technique, you would think that that would be impossible, that people would just always want a more stringent employment law situation. But it, it seemed like it is possible to explain these kind of points to people. So I think it is kind of a, a bit of a, a, a beacon of hope against more crazier um, employment law that, that's kind of coming down the track that seeks to target the, the Uber-style business model. It just reminds me of uh, the, the kind of California spat where journalists were very, or freelance journalists especially, were very unhappy that uh, there was a, a bill where they'd actually lose some of their flexible working arrangements in exchange for um, for more guaranteed uh, kind of stable flexible uh, stable working arrangements and a lot of the time you had the same group of journalists who were writing in support of these measures for things like uber being very annoyed when it was actually applied to them because they realized that it would undermine a lot of their own kind of working practices and actually they they would not benefit as as a result but I think on the, the kind of optimistic note that we, we may well um, be able to reverse some of these changes, uh, or at least hopefully we'll, we'll be able to look at though It's time to end the podcast for this episode. So thank you all very much for listening along in at home. This has been the ASI's Pin Factory podcast with myself, Daniel Pryor, head of programs at the Adam Smith Institute, as well as our head of research, Matthew Lesh, and our head of external affairs, Morgan Schondelmeyer. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more then please do subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and leave us a like if you enjoyed it as well Uh, if you didn't please let us know why in the comments and we'll try our best to improve because of your feedback but for now thank you very much for listening and we will speak to you next week